If you would grab a Bible, let's turn to Psalm 50. Psalm 50. That's where we'll be spending our time for this part of our worship this morning. Psalm 50. Good to see all of you this morning. It's good to be with you and sing these songs. I, I want to say for my part, just on a personal note, I appreciate how many of you have reached out to me about uh, the passing of my grandma uh, just this last uh, Friday. And uh, just so you know, that's something that uh, was somewhat expected. She had not been in good shape for some time, uh, but uh, was a very, very fine Christian lady and a great example to us. And uh, so uh, we are going to be heading down uh, in the middle of this next week to to be with our family and to to, uh, go to the funeral for that. And they've asked me to speak at that funeral. So uh, I hope you'll keep us in prayer and think about us. But I appreciate you uh, thinking about us and uh, expressing that to me. Psalm 50, I want to begin by reading in verse 21. Psalm 50, verse 21. This is God speaking. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. So God is speaking, and God charges his people with an assumption. Thoughtlessly, the people have begun to assume that the way they think must be the way God thinks. You thought that I was like you. And I want to ask you the question, have you ever done that with somebody where you assumed that the things that they like or the things that they thought were exactly what you liked and what you thought and then maybe have the disconnect that happens when you realize that's not actually the case. This happened to me when Sarah and I were dating. This was the one that came into my mind. So I was just convinced that probably the best movie in the history of the world was the movie Dumb and Dumber. Uh, and I just knew that if Sarah would sit down and give this movie a good watching, she would be right there with me, and we could, we could enjoy that movie together. Now, I think she had seen it, or she had seen parts of it. She, she was convinced, I'm not interested, and I, no, 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 you've got to watch it, and of course, I think you can imagine, she didn't laugh through the whole movie. It's a comedy. Um, by the way, I'm not recommending that movie. I don't do movie recommendations. Uh, I'm a preacher, not a movie critic. So, um, but I will just say, I know that feeling, that feeling of how could this be that you're not like me in some area? And we do that with different things, right? We do that with food. You know, we assume somebody will like what we like. We do that with political opinions. We're kind of shocked when other people don't see political matters the way we see them. And there is this feeling like, why doesn't everybody think like I think? And it's easy for us to do that with people. But when, when the disconnect happens, it's kind of jarring. And I want you to see that what God is saying is, is that can happen with our view of him. So that when we think of God, we assume God's going to like what we like and think how we think. And one of the teachings that the Bible shows us is that God is holy And part of the word holy is the idea of being other, being separate, being different. God is not like people. In fact, several times he says that. I'm not a man. I don't see as man sees. I don't think like man thinks. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my thoughts higher than your thoughts and my ways than your ways. But I want to look at this psalm because I want us to see the danger that poses. What can happen, what can begin at just the level of my thoughts, I think God's like me, then inevitably crosses over into the realm of how I live and how I expect to justify my life before God. 
And I want us to see how, in the case of these Israelites, that became an issue. So we're going to call this, uh, you thought I was like you. I got the mirror there because that's the best I could do uh, in thinking about how God's going to reflect our own attributes and interest back to us. So what we're going to do is the first part of our lesson, we're just going to go through Psalm 50 and break it down. And then we're going to take some things out of it toward the end here. So let's begin just by reading. We're going to read the first six verses to start. Psalm 50 and verse 1. Psalm 50, verse 1, The mighty one God, the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him, a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. So this section is about how God is coming to judge. So in verse 1, it says he speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. So just like God calls the earth, you know, here the sun rises and everything begins to cycle. So now he calls the earth, but for a different purpose. He doesn't tell us what that is yet, but the earth is going to bring God's people before him to judge. Verse 2. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. God shines forth from Jerusalem. Jerusalem is called, in another place in Lamentation, the perfection of beauty. It is the center of God's activity on earth. It is where God lives. It's his city. And so he says, out of that city, God shines forth. Verse 3, our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire around him, a mighty tempest. He's come to speak. He does not keep silence. Now, that's important because he's going to say later on, he has been silent, but now that's changing. At this moment, God has something to say to his people. And he likens it to Sinai. Did you notice those pictures in verse 3 about the tempest and the devouring fire? That takes us back to Sinai where God is described as a fire and God is described as lightning and God is described as a storm. All those happen on the mountain. So God is saying, remember that. Now I'm coming to speak again. Verse 4. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. So he calls heaven and earth. Remember in the beginning God created heavens and the earth. Now he calls his creation. Now you come bring my people before me. I want to talk to my people. He's got something to say. And he says specifically in verse 5, there are my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. We've got a connection, and it's time for us to talk about what's going on with that. Verse 6, the heavens declare his righteousness, and God himself is judge. God is here to judge. He comes to judge. But the judgment here is a little different than what we might expect. We might expect when we think of judgment, we think God's going to do sentencing. You go here, you go here. This is more about judging in the sense of here is what you need to change. This is not going well. I need you to live differently. There are some problems God has with his people. All right, so let's look at this next section, 7 to 15. We're going to call this uh, God judges shallow sacrifice. Verse 7, hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. So... 
to begin with, you know God has, he wants a word with his people. So verse 7 and 8, he calls them to him, I will testify against you. Verse 8, though, not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. So he's saying, I don't have a problem here that you're not bringing the animals. You're doing a good job with that. It's always happening. You're doing the right things. That's not my issue. So what is the issue? Verse 9. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. Now, I I want you to notice, this is something kind of delicate in the text. He's saying, I don't need anything that's yours. Okay, verse 9, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds because it's all mine. Something is going on here with the way the people are viewing what they're giving to God. I've got my stuff, and I guess I'll give you this. But really, it's kind of mine. And God says, whoa, that's not what we're doing here. It's all mine. The cattle on a thousand hills is mine. Every bird in the air, every mouse in the field, it's all mine. And then that That goes a little farther, too. Verse 12, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. So don't think that what's going on here is about me being in some kind of need and you providing for the need. Instead, you need to understand that what you're giving me is really mine to begin with. There is a a statement David makes when he prays to God. 1 Chronicles 29, it's also in 2 Samuel 7. He says, Who am I? What is my people that we should be able to offer willingly like this? For all things come from you and of your own we have given you. Okay, we're just giving you back what's yours. Sometimes we say that when we make the contribution, don't we? We say we're returning to God what he's already given. We need to understand that view of God, that God's stuff, it's all God's stuff. It's all his and we are doing it when we give because we're honoring him with what is already his. So what God is saying is my relationship with you and the sacrifices you're offering is not to exploit you. I don't need something from you. I'm not trying to get something out of you. This is not about me, and you're missing the point. Verse 13, he's just said, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. Verse 13, do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? This is an easy one, okay? No, no, God doesn't need that. He's saying that's not about hunger for me, and you're missing the point about the sacrifices. So what's the crux of the issue? Verse 14 and 15 tell us. Verse 14, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call on me on the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. So the crux of the issue is Israel is giving sacrifices, but they are shallow. He says... Don't think that sacrifice is just because I want things a certain way and you got to do them that way because I told you to. He says, offer the sacrifice of thanksgiving. Do this from a sincere heart. Be really grateful. Verse 14, perform your vows, which means do what you say, honor your word. Verse 15, call on me in the day of trouble. In other words, treat me like I'm real and like you really believe in me. And then come offer those sacrifices. You'll understand there's a lot more to it than just the animal. So there's an implication here that their worship had become just really rote and meaningless. You know, oh, we're supposed to do the sacrifice. I mean, after all, it's the Sabbath. This is what we do. Sort of like, have you been there? Well, it's Sunday morning. 
supposed to go to church. Oh, yeah, and got to bring the check. Yeah. Oh, yeah, supposed to eat the Lord's Supper. That's right. That's what we do. Oh, yeah, I got to sing. I don't really like this one, but I'll sing. You know, it's just as if there's no real gratitude, there's no real sincerity, and we're not thinking about why are we doing what we're doing. If anything, we're thinking, well, God told us to, we're supposed to. And that's not what's going on here. He says, I want you to go deeper than that. And he calls his people to account to say, don't be shallow in this. Give me your heart. The second part of what God comes to condemn in his people is found in this last section, verse 16 to 23. We're going to call that God judges corrupt conduct. Verse 16. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you're pleased with him and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your mother's son, your own mother's son. These things you have done and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. The one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. So verse 16, he calls them to account. He says, to the wicked, God says. Remember, he says wicked, but these are God's people. In fact, he's going to say, you have my word on your lips. So they're, they're Jews, they know God, but they're still living in a wrong way. Verse 16, God says, what right do you have to recite my statutes and take my covenant on your lips? So you talk a big game. You, you've got all these words. You know scripture. But what right do you have to speak scripture when you won't live by it? That makes God angry. It's as if they're polluting his words by continuing to say them and living in a wrong way. Verse 17, for you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you if you see a thief you're pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. So you don't want to hear from me. You don't want discipline. You don't want me to tell you what to do. Instead, what you want is to go hang out with evil people. You want to go be with the adulterers and the thieves. And you see how that's precisely backwards? Okay? You would rather hear from evil people than from a righteous God. And God says, well, why are you using my words if that's what you really want? Verse 19, you give your mouth free reign for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother and slander your own mother's son. So there's no bridle on your tongue. You don't care who you hurt by what you say. You just let it fly. Free reign is what the ESV says, which I think is a pretty powerful picture. Deceit, slander, whatever you feel like saying, whatever you feel you need to say to get by, that's what you say. Now, I want you to notice these are seven, eight, and nine of the Ten Commandments. That is, adultery, which is there in verse 18, and stealing, which is in verse 18, and then the uh, false witness, which is there in the, the free reign for evil with the tongue. So here are God's people. They've got God's word on their lips, and yet they go out and say, I really would prefer to be around people who don't do what I'm saying they should. Now, how could that be? What would be the justification for that? How would you be able to, to go to sleep at night saying, I'm going to speak God's word and then I'm going to go live the opposite? Well, it comes in this justification we started with in verse 21. These things you have done and I have been silent. See, they, they keep doing them because God hasn't said anything 
else about it. Now, God's already spoken about it. It's that God is silent in the present about what they're doing. God doesn't stop them, and they assume God's silence is consent, and it is not. God is not consenting to this. So now he says, you thought I was like you, but I'm going to tell you this is going to be different. God says he really does mean what he said in his word. What I said before, I mean now. And just because I don't say it every minute of every day, over and over again, in every generation, all the time, every time you do it, doesn't mean I don't mean it. You see, you thought I was like you. That may be the way you act. That's not the way I act, and that's not the way my word works. So what does he want instead? Verse 22, he says, Mark then you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. That takes us back to the first section, right? Thanksgiving as his sacrifice. To the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. That second part is about this idea of corrupt conduct. You order your way rightly. Live by what you know God wants you to live by. It's not that hard to understand. There is just a challenge in it. So I want to spend the last few minutes here asking the question, you know, we're centering our thoughts around you thought I was like you, how they think that God is like them. I just want to take these two things that we've studied, you know, these last two sections about shallow sacrifice and corrupt conduct and try to make a couple of applications. There will be more you can make, uh, but these are the things that I thought of that I thought might be helpful to bring that kind of into modern times for us. So you thought I was, first of all, they thought that God was needy, which would make God like them, like you and me. Now it goes back to verse 9. Let's read that again. Verse 9, I'll not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. Down in verse 12, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? So God mocks the idea that they might think he's needy. If I were hungry? Okay, let's say I was hungry, which, I mean, that's, that's a theological dilemma in itself. Why would God be hungry? But if I was hungry, do you think I would tell you? Would I come to you of all the places I would go to get what I need? Why would I need something from you? There is an awful lot of pride in that thought about God and a pretty low opinion of God. So how, how could you get to a, part, a point where you thought God was needy? What would lead us there? Well, I think it would go something like this. They begin to think that they are doing something for God by their sacrifices. That this is something God needs from them. That they need to continue to do this because God needs them too. And they start to get the idea of the dependent and the independent inverted. God is independent of them, but they begin to think, no, I can sacrifice to God if I want, but God needs it, so I'll just do it for him. And so they begin to think, well, you know, what, what really matters about this, you know, if we were giving to someone in need, we might think, well, I know that we didn't have the best conversation or I didn't do that in the best way, but hey, the bottom line is I met that guy's need, I helped him, so I'm not going to worry about just exactly how I did it. And so easily it becomes, well... I mean, I gave you the sacrifice, God. What else do you want from me? I mean, how much more do you need? What all do I have to give you? You see what's happening? God is the one who's just begging us, please, just give me what I need. And we're the ones saying, ah, oh, I feel like I've given you enough. 
And so suddenly there's an inversion of the proper order where we are giving because God is greater and we honor him. And instead we are giving because God is lesser and we're throwing him a bone. That, I think, is where we can begin to think about how we in modern times might think that way about God. I believe we act like God is needy when we believe that God would accept just whatever attention and whatever gift we feel like giving to him. Just whatever it may be, whatever small bit of anything that we would give, whatever bone we throw his way, God is just happy. He's just lapping it up. Thank you so much. You just finally thought of me. As if God is dependent on me in some way, as if that insult won't be noticed. Now, we know that that's not true in relationships we have with people. When there's somebody who's above us in some kind of social way or maybe in authority, we don't assume, well, they would just be happy with the smallest bit of attention or gift that I would give them. And yet we seem to treat God that way. So we'll say things like, you know, as long as I'm doing something in worship, he'll be happy with it. He'll be fine with that. As long as I'm trying, it doesn't really matter what I do. Or, on the flip side, as long as I'm doing the right things, it doesn't matter how I do them, or if I'm doing them the way God wants me to, I mean, he's going to be happy that I'm doing something. When we approach God that way, what we're saying is God would never challenge me about my service to him or about my worship to him. I mean, who does he think he is? We begin to say, well, God is lower than me. He's just going to be happy. And, and I, I'm really struck by the fact Malachi does this, where he says, you know, when the people are bringing sacrifices, animals that are sick and lame, and Malachi says, offer it to your governor. See if he would take it. You, you don't do this in other parts of life where you say, I'm going to do, the, I'm going to insult this person by giving them just the smallest, least, worst and yet, if you do it to God, you're saying something about your view of God. That's what he's saying. So, when we think that God doesn't notice, he's just happy to accept any attention, he doesn't have any expectations from us, then what we're saying is God is needy, which would make him like us because we're definitely needy. And yet God says, that's not the way this relationship is going to work. Instead, there needs to be a gratitude that flows upward and there also needs to be a respect for the things that I've taught you. The second thing is, uh, you thought I was indifferent to sin. You know, this is really the, we haven't addressed this yet. This is really the, the mindset behind, you thought I was like you. So he lists the evil things that they do. Look at verse 21 again. Verse 21, these things you have done, all these evil things, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. So God says, I've been silent, and he can choose to be silent for whatever reason he wants, but the danger is that we assume his silence means indifference. Because sometimes we do that, right? Okay, sometimes, so, frankly, sometimes I do that with my kids. You know, if I'm silent, that's kind of permission. You know, okay, I'll let you know if I need to stop it. Okay, but God's not like me. That's not the way God works. God's not indifferent to sin, and a silence shouldn't be taken that way. You thought, he says, that I was like you. You thought I wouldn't notice, or you thought I would brush it aside. 
the fact that you put my words on your lips and then disobey those words, or you thought that I wouldn't care that you're in evil company or that you're using words for evil, but you were wrong about that. I'm not like you. I'm not just overlooking it. I'm not just not worried about it. That's not me. I think it's very dif difficult for us to remain really serious about sin. And the reason is, we're just sort of overwhelmed by it. There's just so much of it. I mean, you look out in the world, there's sin all over the world. You look among your brethren, there's sin among our brethren. And you look in the mirror, and there's sin in the mirror. And at some point, we just kind of say, okay, I just can't be this intense about this. There's just some things we just got to not worry about. And sometimes our silence is consent. Sometimes we are, like he says here, pleased with thieves and adulterers. And sometimes we even join in the sin parade. We add our own to it. But we cannot mistake God's silence for indifference and think that he is like us about that. Now, let me tell you how that plays out in our time and where those threads of thought come into our culture we hear and sometimes we say things like, who are we to judge someone? Or if we do make a mistake or someone else makes a mistake, someone else sins, then we have a lot of euphemisms for that that really soften the idea. Like, you know, everybody makes mistakes. Nobody's perfect. You know, or we'll just say, you know, I, it was an accident. I slipped up. I have an issue or a struggle. And so we begin to just kind of minimize it as if it's not the big deal God says it is. It is hard for us to stay serious about sin. That's not true of God. God is not like us in that way. So, basically, we treat sin practically as if it's not as big a deal. And then we turn around and assume God's like us. And that's an issue. Because inevitably, what begins to happen is we get more comfortable with it. And we don't treat it as the problem it is. Now, please don't, don't mishear me here. I am not saying that whenever we see sin, it needs to cause us to treat other people unkindly or to be overly harsh. Nor am I saying that that means that somehow we can condemn other people and not examine ourselves or things like that. What I am saying is we need to see sin as it always is, which is a breach in God's holy will and something that can condemn us. And that should create a certain spirit in us, a spirit that says, I want to get rid of this, a spirit that says, I want to help others get rid of this, a spirit that says something needs to change and fast, and that we need other people to pray with us and for us about that sin. But it is not something where we say, oh, well, happened again. It's not something that we can ever afford to grow indifferent to because God is not that way. Look at verse 22 with me again. Mark this then, you who forget God. Notice that charge. You forget God because you think God is just silent and uncaring. So you've forgotten him. Mark this then, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. To the, the one who offers thanksgiving as a sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. I hope those words don't sound casual to you. Order his way 
rightly. He is saying, take my word and build your life around it. That's the one, he says, who will see my salvation. So God is not like man. And I hope you'll think through. There are a million other ways, I'm sure, that we can think about how that's true, that difference between God and man. But I want to stress to you that that means we don't get closer to God and his nature merely by digging into ourselves, thinking more about our own thoughts. We need God's input because if we are only focused on us, inevitably we start to recreate God in our image rather than the other way around. We also don't get closer to God just by hearing other people talk. Other people, unless they are reflecting in some way the message of God, are not going to get us any closer to the nature of God. This is something we need to hear from God and then be disciplined by that and choose to follow him sincerely. So I encourage you, let's remember the otherness of God and let's serve him sincerely. Let's serve him with our whole lives. Thank you for your attention this morning. We'll be dismissed for our classes.